It's a blessing to see you this morning. Thanks for coming. We're in a second part of a section in Scripture that uh, if you weren't here last week, I I kind of apologize because I'm not going to be able to fill in everything that you might have missed. Some of you were at the women's retreat, and some of you had the flu, and uh, it could be a number of things, but uh, thanks for coming. We are going to proceed. We're in the book of Exodus together, as uh, most of you know. If you have a Bible, open to chapter 7 again. And today we have a second shot at uh, understanding the first nine plagues. Nine plagues. I go like this, kind of confusing. Uh, they are recorded for our amazement in uh, chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. And uh, of course, they were originally written uh, for a generation of people, a new generation. Not the ones that came out of Egypt, but the ones that are going into the land. And for these people, they were going to have to do what their parents refused to do. But they would not be able to do that unless they had a stronger appreciation for the mightiness of Yahweh than their parents did. I'm going to come back to that when we come to the uh, takeaway today. That's why this was all written down. Not just for their generation, but perhaps for this generation. That is maybe going to face some giants that we are not quite ready for yet. We left a lot of uncovered ground last week, so I want us to pick up right where we left off. We postponed a few important questions, the greatest of which, I think, is why do we have these plagues at all? If God was wanting to get his people out of Egypt so that they could return to the promised land, could he not have found a way to do that that didn't involve so much mayhem and so much bloodshed and so much uh, destruction and misery? So, you know, you had the Nile turning to blood. If you were here last week, we went through all nine of these, and the frogs and the bugs and the flies and the then the cattle dying and the boils and the hailstorm and the uh, locusts and then the darkness overall. That's the only one where it was the withholding of something. And then finally, the death of the firstborn, which we'll be into next week. Now, you remember, do you remember what God told Abraham? Where I'm thinking about Genesis 15. He told him that Abraham's descendants would be afflicted in a foreign land for 400 years, at the end of which they would come out with great possessions. And uh, we, we, that's recorded for us uh, in Exodus 11 and 12. And we read there how God manipulated the hearts of the Egyptian people so that the Israelites could just kind of go up to the door and say, knock on the door and say, uh, wow, you got a nice gold Rolex. Could I have that? And the people would just say, yeah, it's all yours. So it didn't matter if it was gold, silver jewelry, um, fine clothing, anything. They just willingly and, if not cheerfully, let God's people plunder the riches of Egypt just before they hitched up and left. And I don't know, you could call that payback or reparations of, uh, you know, generations of unpaid work uh, was now getting paid. But anyway, God made the Egyptians willing to cough up their riches. And this is not something that God could do, it's something that God did do. So that made me start wondering, why didn't God just send Moses back to Egypt to retrieve his chosen people, but without all the plagues and all the bloodshed, just cut to the chase? Couldn't God just change the hearts of everybody, including the Pharaoh and all of his servants? You know, smiles all around and a beautiful send-off with, you know, fireworks shooting from the top of the pyramids and a thunderous flyover by the Egyptian Air Force. And a big bow around the neck of the Sphinx. I mean, you know, God's people then, you know, grab their bags of gold and uh, grab Joseph's bones and head off for the land of milk and honey. Accompanied by bands and banners and confetti and heartfelt hugs all around. Well, you know, God could do that. But he didn't. 
You see, there's another little part to that prophecy or that promise that God made to Abraham. And he said that they would be afflicted for 400 years, but then it says this, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, after the promised judgment and the 400 years, they shall come out with great possessions. Judgment on Egypt was always part of the plan. Not just the rescue of God's people, but the punishment of those who had hurt them for so long. Now, God doesn't always judge nations this way with, you know, powerful and public calamities. But God did say to Abram from the very first, when he first called him, Genesis 12. He said, anyone who dishonors the nation that comes from you, Abraham, God will curse them. And yes, God would bless those who bless his people, but he would curse those who mistreat Israel, his chosen people. And so you think about it while you're reading through this, where we are in the book. Israel had just emerged as a nation while they're there in Egypt, multiplying from, you know, 70 souls and others, you know, pushing 2 million. And that means that Egypt is the first nation that has a chance to deal with Israel. And sadly, they do so treacherously. And so God makes a powerful statement about how serious he is about his covenant with Abraham. We know that later God will not dish out judgment quite like this on other nations, not so dramatically, but here he is serving notice. Do not mess with my people. These are my covenant people. Now I'm sure you know that judgment is the first thing about God that gets tossed out when people try to get a little creative. They stop listening to God and how God describes himself. They want to come up with something else. And So let me put this up here. Judgment is has become, anyway, a bad word. Maybe it always has been. Even in many Christian quarters. I mean, even Christians uh, will mock the Puritans, such as Jonathan Edwards, forever preaching a sermon like, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Conveniently forgetting that it's right in our Bibles, in the book of Hebrews, that our God is a consuming fire. This is New Testament, and it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Sometimes they'll think, well, you know, the Old Testament God was the judgment God, and now we get the God of love. So we don't have to deal with any of this. But if it's up to us humans, of course, we would always toss out judgment. And so I find this kind of a strange ignorance and arrogance, but uh, somehow mortals like us feel we get to elevate our own preferences for the kind of God we want. And that is the great debate of the ages. From the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden, is God who he claims to be? And if he is, where does that put us, his creatures? What status does that leave for us? Now, the Apostle Peter had an answer for this debate. We ended last week with this text from the New Testament from 1 Peter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety on him because he he cares for you. Starts with these words, humble yourselves. Now, for some people, that's the whole essence of the Christian religion. And a lot of people, I guess more in the past than today, um, they have run too far with this. Self-denial, self-renunciation sounds biblical. But for them, however, being a Christian is all about a race to the bottom. You know, grabbing the little footstool where a slave will sit and wash the feet and eyes cast constantly downward. And any trip there might be to glory means you've got to wear cheap, drab clothing and scratchy underwear. And forswear all entertainment and engage in intimacy only to have children. And then take vows of silence and do a lot of fasting. Oh, and so maybe that's the main purpose of the plagues, to just remind us that, you know, if you want to be anything but humble, well, you better listen to the or else. 
as if God is saying, if I could just get you people to tell the truth about what a zero you are, I'd be happy. Well, that is a total misunderstanding of both the plagues and humility. But it brings up what we ended with last week, that we need to acknowledge our human pride and we need to make some serious efforts to do something about it. But how do we do that? Acknowledge it, that's hard enough. But then what? You might read a story like Jesus uh, told in Luke 18, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. One of these was boasting about how he good he is, not even that, how much better he is than the other guy. And the other one beats his chest and he says just seven words, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Now Jesus said that the man who humbled himself like that would be exalted. And so you might think when you read that, so that's what I'll do. I'll stop bragging myself and I'll start beating myself down. Now I think you can see from 1 Peter 5 that there's there's more to the Christian life than just humbling yourself because there is this deep affection in your heart for God to exalt you. And it's a good thing. So we read this, humble yourself therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxiety, all your worries, all your burden on him because he cares for you. This is not a God who is against you. This is a God who is for you. And so you have to love that. But that still leaves it a little bit vague how we're supposed to do this. How do we get such humility? And it's going to re remain a little vague until we make sure that we do not overlook a little part of this verse that is the biggest part. And it's right here, those words, under the mighty hand of God. We learn from 1 Peter that we humble ourselves as a response to something we learn about God. That it's not about our loneliness to begin with, it's about the amazing, mighty majesty and strength of our mighty God with the mighty hand. And so we learn from 1 Peter that he is the God of the mighty hand. It is a hand that can judge, but it is also a hand that can lift up. And the very hand that was judging the Egyptians was rescuing his people in the same acts. This is Exodus language, the mighty hand of God. So here's where I'm going with that. The goal of the plagues was not just to get people to be humble enough to save them or punish them if they are not. The goal of the plagues was to produce God-honoring, exaltation preceding humility as people observe with awe what the mighty hand of God can do. And more than anything, the plagues were a way for God to show his mighty hand in the face of all pretenders. God says it explicitly that you may know, which means acknowledge, that you may appreciate there is no one like Yahweh. Now, if you don't start with admiring God and exalting him, you are not going to get very far with humility. Because that will only put you in the sights and not God. So you have to start with an ego-busting launch point where you have dropped your jaw before the mighty hand of God and forgotten all about yourself. In the presence of such a God, then you're concerned not with what you want anymore, even to want humility, but you just want to hear him. You want to obey him. You want to worship him. You want to put the light on him. You want to delight in him and not in yourself. And so when you see the God of the mighty hand, then he's got his sleeves rolled up and he's doing stuff and then you pivot decisively from just trying to become something that you can delight in. You know, I'm the humble Christian. And you start becoming someone overcome with delight in the mighty glory of your God. And this is the story of his glory. 
Here's what we've been doing as we go through Exodus. We kind of started with this idea that you read God in. And then last week we talked about how it's important to read yourself into the story. So you read God in. He may not even be mentioned, but you know he's active in so many ways. It's really much easier to do that in the section we're in now. And then last week we talked about how important it is to put yourself in the story. You don't think, oh, there's Pharaoh. He's so proud. No, realize you are proud too. Look how God thinks about a proud man because that that man is in your heart. But I want you to think about this a little differently today. Let's, let's, let's do it this way. Who is big and who is little? In the way I have it here, it sounds like, well, yourself. You read yourself in. That's big. Let's, let's reverse that. Let's say read God in is reading God in big and then reading yourself in small. Reading God in big and putting him in the foreground and then reading yourself small because you are in the background. Uh, this is what we call correcting our perspective. <laughs> and it's so important. This is crucial because we all have a tendency to read ourselves big, right? Because we're so close to ourselves. You know, we all have a thumb that is big enough to block out Mount Rainier, right? I mean, if you hold it just right. I mean, your thumb, not, not the mountain. But when you get up near the mountain, you can't get away with that anymore. It's just too much. And so here in Exodus, God comes up so close. No one can miss him. No one can block him out. No one can avoid that by, you know, putting themselves big because God is great, because God is infinite, and that he is flawlessly holy, and he's so full of everything that he needs, he needs nothing else. And then here are you. You're not infinite. You're finite. You're not flawlessly holy. You are fallen and flawed. And then you need him. Even if you didn't have any flaws, in fact, throughout eternity, you will need him. You are never enough in yourself, ever. And God is always enough in himself, infinitely so. All right. Okay, so you're going to read yourself in, but kind of small, but you should do that. You need to read yourself into the story. And whatever you read a verse, but if that's all you do, then you will end up with a narcissistic study Bible. Your name all over the place, you know, where it says Pharaoh, you say Bruce. Or, you know, and you say, my name's all over the Bible, it's so cool. Well, you are all over the Bible. It, it is true. And so when you read something like John 3.16, read your own name in. For God so loved, it says the world, but uh, say, for God so loved you, Serena or June Corley, whoever it might be, me. For God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, that would be me, believes in him should not perish, etc. Now, when you read God in, however, you're going to read him in big, but I want you to do this. This will not be just personalizing it, but praying it, turning it into a praise. And so then we go like this, for God, wait a minute, I am taught, God is right here. For God, you, you, the great God of the mighty hand, you, as great as you are, so loved me that you gave me free of charge. You gave me free of charge, the only begotten son, that if I will simply believe in him and I will not perish but have eternal life. How can I ever thank you enough for that? Now, you see what I'm talking about? When you come to the word of God, then you read God in big, and you read yourself there as well, and you are encountering God up close. That is so, that's perspective. And that perspective is what we get in the book of Exodus. That's what's happening with these plagues. God is showing his glory in a colossal way, a very up-close and personal way. And 
if we read that carefully and we see God and we see ourselves in that, we correct our natural perspective, and that is the key to humility, and it's the only path to personal exaltation. Humility means that you have discovered God is so big that you are not afraid to be nothing in comparison. It's just the truth. You hear Isaiah preach to the nations, and you read yourself in, and you read God in. Behold, the nations are a drop from a bucket. And you say, well, if the nations are a drop from a bucket, what am I? A tiny little part of a drop you could barely even see it. In fact, he says this, all the nations are as nothing before him. Now, I'm not going to say him. I'm going to say you because I'm going to turn this into a prayer. All the nations, that's including me, are as nothing before you, Lord. You, the God of the mighty hand, they are accounted by you as less than nothing in emptiness. That's me. And you delight in that because that's the truth. And you, Lord, are so great. And this is where worship comes from. God glorifying himself is infinitely more important than him humbling or exalting you. If God lifted us up and he left himself sort of mediocre over here, it would be the worst thing that could ever happen to us. Our glory is that someone as mighty and majestic as he would ever even take a second look at us. C.S. Lewis pushed this point in Mere Christianity. If you want to look this up, it's uh, at least in my version, it's page 127, 128. Uh, it's not two full pages, just whatever, you know. Okay, so here it goes, and, and I love this. We must not think pride is something God forbids because he is offended at it, or that humility is something he demands is due to his own dignity as if God himself was proud. He is not the least worried about his dignity. The point is he wants you to know him. He wants to give you himself. I love how he said that. Not that he wants you, but he's going to give you himself. And he and you are two things of such a kind that if you really got into any kind of touch with him, you will, in fact, be humble, delightedly humble. And so he says any kind of touch with him, that's proximity that brings perspective. And so he says this, delightedly humble, feeling the infinite relief of having for once got rid of all the silly nonsense about your own dignity, which has made you restless and unhappy all your life. He is trying to make you humble in order to make this moment possible, trying to take off a lot of silly, ugly, fancy dress in which we have got all ourselves up and strutting about like little idiots we are, all its posing and posturing. To get even near it, even a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. That's what I want for you today, a cold drink of water, because under the majesty of God, he has drawn you to a place where you see him for who he is. God is not trying to make you feel small so he can feel big. You are small. And he is big. And he just wants the truth of that to grip you so deeply that you can appreciate true majesty in him. Humility is forgetting yourself in the presence of real glory. Much like someone standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. You know, have you been, how many have been to the Grand Canyon? It makes you feel really tiny when you stand on the edge of that and look at that vast canyon lying before you. And if you're truly impressed, you are not calculating how this is making you feel. You are just impressed. So when you have seen the exploits of the God of the mighty hand, it seems perfectly right to agree with the psalmist, Lord, I have no good apart from you. In your presence is fullness of joy. So read yourself in small. Read God in big. Now, I'm not making any of that up. Uh, This is 
pretty much what the plagues are all about, what they tell us over and over, where God himself tells us why he's doing them. And seven times he does this. Now, when he says why I'm doing them, not once do you hear something like this. So you will feel small. Every one of them has something to do with this, that you will know how big Yahweh is and who he is. So you start with 7.5. Let me give you just a string of references here, because, and you can kind of turn to these as we go. But for seven times, he gives you the purpose of why he's doing these amazing and gut-wrenching plagues. God tells, first of all, Moses and Aaron, he's previewing the plagues that are coming. And he says his purpose is that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. They will see in these physical catastrophes that they have run into a God who absolutely exists. The I am who I am. Nobody controls him, nobody thumbs their nose at him and gets away with it. He exists so absolutely in himself. He has no beginning or end. He is the absolute standard of truth, beauty, and goodness. And whatever he wants cannot be thwarted. He needs nothing, and yet everything else exists that exists needs him. That's what he wants the Egyptians to get a tiny little glimpse of. And it's no surprise that the Lord then tells Pharaoh, this will be in 717, that the first plague will happen so that, quote, you, Pharaoh, will know that I am Yahweh. In 810, it says that when the frogs die, at the very time that Pharaoh said, they said, when do you want the frogs to die? Because you're going to be very impressed when that happens. And so he says, well, tomorrow. And so tomorrow they die, and this is what was supposed to happen, that, there, that the Pharaoh would know that there was no one like Yahweh our God. And then the fourth plague comes, the flies. And then there are zero flies in Goshen where the Israelites live. And when Pharaoh would learn that, then it says that you will know then that I am Yahweh in the midst of the land. I'm not just up there somewhere. I'm down here doing stuff, and I know the borders between where you guys live and where those guys live. The seventh plague is rich with purpose statements. The hailstorm comes, the plague will... And the Lord says to Pharaoh, you know, these things are going to come on you personally so that you will know there was none like me in all the earth. And then God says that he raised up Pharaoh to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And then when the hailstorm stops, right when Moses prays, Pharaoh is supposed to know that the earth belongs to Yahweh. And then the last one, the eighth plague, the locusts come. That has another purpose for the plagues. And this is said to Moses. And this is so important, you might think, well, this is all to make a lasting impact on the Egyptians. No, this is to make a lasting impact on the Israelites because he is teaching his people what he can do. And so he tells to Moses, these plagues are transacted so that you, beginning with Moses, the recorder of all these things in Scripture, may tell in the hearing of your son and grandson how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians. NASB translates that, made a mockery of them. I mean, just trounced them. God 10, Egypt 0. And what signs I did among them, that you, Israelites, may know that I am Yahweh. Now, all these statements are about the exalting of the high name and the glory of God as Yahweh. So when God does these plagues, these mighty acts of judgment, he calls them, he is speaking to the whole earth about who he is. I am Yahweh. Egypt, know this. Pharaoh, know this. My people of all generations, know this. The whole earth and all nations, know this. All gods of all these peoples, know this. I am Yahweh over all the earth that belongs to me, every bit of it. Outdoors and indoors, I put frogs all over your bedroom. I am the God of all of it. Now, I want us to look at God's mighty hand as displayed during the plagues. And I want us to start with uh, 
going back to the magicians we talked about last week. This is not Penn and Terrell Teller. This is, you know, the court magicians of Egypt. And I said last week that there were five stages to the humiliation of these sorcerers, these magicians. Stage one was when Aaron's staff ate up their staffs. Let me give you the references down here, and you can write these out. Um, and so we had that in 712. And then stage two will come during the first plague, when they, they too make the Nile water turn to blood, but they cannot do anything to reverse that curse. And the same with uh, stage three, it's the same when they make frogs come out of the Nile, actually making things worse, uh, but they can do nothing to fix the problem that they've, that they've added to. And Pharaoh, he doesn't go to them. Pharaoh pleads with Moses and Aaron to take the frogs away. That's more humiliation. And then comes the third plague, and this is stage four, the bugs. And the magicians try to make bugs, but they can't. They have come to the place where we would quote the verse from 1 John very triumphantly sitting there in our little group. We'd say, by the way, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. <laughs> and that is where the magicians are forced to admit this has to be the finger of God. The God of the mighty hand defeated them with four fingers tied behind his back. <laughs> just one finger. That was plenty. Now, this is God probably with a small g, but they're just submitting. Some force is holding us back. We cannot do what maybe we expected to do. Some people think, well, they can only do the first three miracles, whatever, and that was as far as they could go. But I think at this point, it's just that they got stopped. There's somebody stopping us. There's somebody more powerful that this is the finger of God. And then these guys are not mentioned again until you get to plague six. And the boils hit them as well as all the other Egyptians. And so stage five, they're thoroughly humiliated because Moses comes to court and they cannot even stand up or appear before him. So it's like one team doesn't even show up. It's like a forfeiture because of the boils. And right there would be a great time to read 2 Timothy 3.8. Let me give you this reference. There are some other references I'll refer to and I'll just put them up here. Now that is where we actually get two, the, uh, two names of these magicians that were passed down in Jewish tradition. Paul has been warning Timothy about bad guys that will come around during the last days. And then in verse 8, he says this, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men, the ones that are coming in the future, also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. That's right where we are in the story in Exodus. Their folly is plain to all and you never see them again. Now, it's important to know that these guys were mediators of the Egyptian religion. Uh, they, had, they had access to the power that lay behind the many false gods of Egypt. And so God says, he's going to say in chapter 12, verse 12, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am Yahweh. Now, he says that in conjunction with the final plague. And so Perhaps specifically on that night, and especially, according to Numbers 33-4, that's like all the, play, all the gods got humiliated. Because here's the death angel coming, and there's not one god they call on. You know, save us, help us, you know, keep us. No, not one god of Egypt can hold back the death angel. But this has been happening throughout the plagues, because the different things that are being manipulated by God, like the Nile River, the Nile River represented more than one god. One of their gods was depicted with the head of a frog. Now, there were idols in the shapes of cows and bulls. Remember the uh, golden calf that's going to be coming. 
the plague of darkness, the very last one, will certainly, will certainly strikes at the sun god, Ra, which is the greatest of the gods. The two greatest gods were the Nile and the sun. And that's first and last. So although there was not a specific deity, I don't think, associated with every plague, God showed his superiority over all the hundreds of Egyptian gods. Not one of them could come to the aid of the Egyptians to save them. Not one. The magicians could not control these gods sufficiently to overpower what the real God was doing. Take a big breath. I am so glad I'm a Christian because my God is greater than every pretend God. Now, there is a question that comes to mind as you go through this and says, where did they get the power to do these miracles that they were doing? What were their secret arts that they were using? Perhaps incantations of some kind, spells and all of that, we don't know. But how did they get the power to make sticks into snakes and, and turn water to blood and frogs bring them out of the Nile? Well, some people think that these were just parlor tricks, sort of like a Vegas magic show where the, you know, where the lady gets sawn in half and you know, most of us are wise enough to know that it's not really, really supernatural. Uh, of course it's not. It's just a cool trick. Uh, but I don't think that was happening here. Uh, I believe that the gods of Egypt were real and they were fully capable of doing many powerful things through their sorcerers, or vice versa. The gods of Egypt, of course, were not actual gods, you know, like capital G God, because there's only one capital G God. But that doesn't mean that they weren't real supernatural beings. We would call them demonic forces, fallen angels who contend with God Almighty and deceive mankind. Uh, These spirits had great power, and they can aid men like these magicians to mimic the miracles of Moses and Aaron. But their power can only go so far, only until God says, no, you're not doing that anymore. You could say, well, God chose three easy miracles to begin with that they could. Well, easy miracle, that's sort of like an oxymoron. (laughs) Don't know if any, it's not a miracle if it's easy. Anyway, uh, but they can only go as far as God permitted. So I don't know, but at some point God turned on the afterburners and he left them in the dust. The mighty hand of God defeats the gods of Egypt. That was in the Cairo News Tribune the next morning. The mighty hand of God defeats the gods of Egypt. You might as well all know it because all your firstborns are dead and you cannot miss this. You see here as well God's extraordinary control of nature, something that was really behind much of the false worship of pagan cultures. Well, Yahweh owns it all. The earth belongs to him. Everything, and you remember how Jesus calmed the wind and he stopped the, stopped the mighty waves by just speaking to it? And there were the disciples in the boat and they were in awe. And they said this, who is this? Even the wind and the sea obey him. That boat was the school of humility that day as they were there under the mighty hand, in this case, the mighty word of Jesus Christ, who is God. Now, here's the other deal that I want us to focus on, and that is God's mighty hand and Pharaoh. We need to talk about that because we get this whole deal of God hardening his heart. Now, Pharaoh was the biggest God of Egypt. Uh, and he was proud of it, He's, he, whatever, we went into that enough last week. But God was determined to judge this arrogant man thoroughly. So the hardening of his heart was a prime way that God showed his superiority over him as we, as we read through it. I don't know if Pharaoh ever knew what was going on, well, why his heart was the way it was. But uh, here's something that, I guess, part of God's secret work around this world. Proverbs 21.1. I'll give you some more references here. Write these down. 
Proverbs 21.1 says this, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of Yahweh. He turns it wherever he will. Well, Bible readers have often puzzled over these chapters in Exodus because it looks like Pharaoh is hardening his heart quite well without any help from God. And yet it says at the outset that God plans to harden the king's heart. God first speaks to Moses about Pharaoh's stubbornness in these words. This is in 319 and 20. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God's talking to Moses at the burning bush. Therefore, God plans... We we know from that that God plans to use a display of power to overcome Pharaoh's reluctance so that the people can go. And it appears, however, that God plans to use a lot of plagues. In fact, all of them. So he says this to Moses, For I will stretch out my hand, it's the God of the mighty hand, and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Now this is God just previewing the whole thing. Now in the next chapter, in chapter 4, he informs Moses that when Moses does his little, you know, I call them mini miracles, you know, it's just I'm going to do the, the, uh, the, the staff to snake thing or the leprous thing or the, what's the other one, water to, uh, yeah, water to blood. Uh, he, he tells Moses that they're actually not going to do any good, although you're supposed to do them anyway. Because God says this, but I will harden his heart, Pharaoh's heart, so that he will not let the people go. And that's the first note we have that God hardens Pharaoh. And then God tells Moses to follow up with a final threat to Pharaoh, which really can't happen until the first nine plagues bring nothing but Pharaoh's refusal. He says, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. That's plague 10 already. One more time, just before the series of plague encounters, God tells Moses in in chapter 7, verse 3, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Now, that's God's preview of what he plans to do, and there's not one thing that happens that departs even slightly from that script. Now, if words mean anything, that clearly says that God is planning to do something to the king's heart to make him unyielding in the face of harsh judgments. And as we read through these chapters, we can see that the convincing power of these plagues is immense. Uh, So read yourself in and picture yourself being there. It's so immense that it's impossible to explain why the king or any king would not cave in and do what God commanded and demanded of him. The same could be said for Pharaoh's servants. They are also hardened when they see the devastation and even begin to plead with Pharaoh to relent. Chapter 10, verse 1 and verse 7 and following. And as as well as all the Egyptians, we find out in 14, 17, that all of them have seen the compelling plagues, but God hardens all of them at the time when Israel goes to the Red Sea. It's not just one stubborn man. But here's Pharaoh. We're focused on him. He must realize after a few plagues how helpless he is even to defend himself, let alone his people and his land that is just being systematically obliterated by God's mighty hand. Now, sometimes Pharaoh gives in a little, offers some compromise. That is when the plague is actually going on. Just like, you know, just take the men, but leave the women and children. Or, you know, you can go, but leave the livestock. Uh, But Moses never accepts any of those compromises, uh, but every time, as soon as the plague is relaxed, what happens? Pharaoh reverts to his stubbornness. Now, what can possibly explain how this happens? Well, Moses actually tells us the king's heart was hard even long after he should have caved in because God hardened it. That's just what it says. 
Now, two things from that before I talk about some problems with that. One is that God evidently had lessons to teach about himself and about his judgment, and only he knows how much is needed to drive home the point he's trying to make. In this case, ten plagues, no more, but no less. And also, God knows what these Egyptians deserved for all the misery that they had caused God's people. And of course, they deserve far worse than they get here, but God will give them the full dose he has in mind. You have destroyed my kids. You have thrown them in the Nile. You've done all of this. I will take your firstborns. He will not let Pharaoh get off easy with some early repentance. He will not let him off at all. But this, of course, raises sticky questions. Here's maybe just two of them. I, don't, I think these are the major things. First, isn't turning a heart toward God uh, that is hard? Wouldn't that be a sin? And so wouldn't this story depict God making somebody sin? Wouldn't that be a problem? So we've got to say something about that. And another thing, if God hardened the king, how is the king being held accountable and judged for not doing what God says? It's, it's just, well, it's not his fault. But then is it God's fault? But why, why blame Pharaoh? Now, some people try to resolve these difficulties by simply noting that three times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart during the second plague, the fourth plague, and the seventh plague. Uh, At other times, it says that his heart was hard, but doesn't say who did it. It just was. Possibly God did it. Maybe Pharaoh was hardening his own heart. just doesn't say. Uh, Now, isn't, isn't it possible that God gave Pharaoh plenty of time to give in if he wanted to, but Pharaoh chose not to, his own free will? Then it isn't till plague number six, that God explicitly hardens Pharaoh's heart in the plague of the boils. Now, you can go a couple of ways with this. Put it on this way. We'll put on this hat. You can either say that this was when his natural stubbornness was about to give out, and then God would not let him do that because there were more judgments that God intended to do. The fact is that God must harden, the fact that God must harden an already hardened heart, which is, now getting reluctantly softened by repeated suffering, seems to show that God's ultimate will is for Pharaoh to be hard and resistant to the very end so that God's purposes may be achieved. So that's one way to go. Or you can say that this was when God set in stone the choice that Pharaoh had already been making of his own free will. So this hardening was God confirming Pharaoh in his sin so that from now on he could only do one thing. That would be what we call judicial hardening. It's not God making Pharaoh choose any different from what he would have. It's just confirming him and setting in concrete the choice of his heart. He had gone a step too far. Now, maybe God had been giving the king chances to do right, wanted him to do right, but his repeated refusals involved him crossing the point of no return, and now no change is possible. Now, the problem with the second approach is that it implies that God might have been even slightly open to Pharaoh shortening the plagues by caving in sooner, and God was not. From the beginning, we know that was not God's plan. So God is obviously preventing Pharaoh from stopping the waves of judgment until the death of the firstborn happens. Maybe because, think about this, maybe because that's where we get the powerful symbolism of the lamb that is slain, of the blood that's applied, of the substitutionary sacrifice that earns freedom from all bondage. That would be a paradigm for salvation for every one of us. Jesus is the Lamb of God, crucified right at Passover. 
the author of liberty from all of our sins. So it is only after the tenth plague that God lets Pharaoh relent long enough to send the Israelites away. And think about that. How does that happen if this heart has already been judicially hardened? And so then, but go on with the story. Even after that, God hardens Pharaoh's heart one more time, causing him to deploy his army and pursue the Israelites to the Red Sea where the Egyptians are all drowned. God says he will do this last hardening so that, quote, I will get glory over Pharaoh and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Now, there's no evidence Pharaoh ever had a broken heart where his pride was shattered. All of Pharaoh's prayers and suspicious confessions of sins um, were fox, we call them foxhole prayers. I mean, he had trouble on his hands. He thought, you know, I've got to humble myself, at least go, go through the motions, as well as he could. And he asked Moses to throw up a quick prayer so all the pain would go away, and, uh, and so then Pharaoh would just go back. Now, God could have softened this man's heart if God wanted to, just like he broke your heart when he turned your rebellious heart to love Jesus. Now, Pharaoh didn't send Israel away in the end because he was suddenly filled with kindness and he just wanted these poor people to experience freedom for the first time in their lives. He did it because the pain was too great on him on Passover night when his firstborn son was killed and because this one time God did not harden his heart as before. He was being compelled by a mighty hand. That's what God said from the very beginning. Now, if there never was any chance that Pharaoh would do anything but rebel against God's commands because of his own heart, being hard, it seems unnecessary if misleading to attribute his hardness to God in some way. It makes more sense to say that God is working against what Pharaoh might have done on his own, especially after the series of massive plagues should have softened him. This hardening is what God said he would do. And so several times, right after it says, Pharaoh refused to let them go, he hardened his heart, it says, just as the Lord had said. God is in control, not Pharaoh. Paul quotes from this section when he is trying to prove that God has the freedom to deal with people as he pleases. Romans 9.17 quotes from Exodus 9.16. Then the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And then Paul concludes with this, So then he, that is God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever whomever he wills. This is simply a recognition that a sovereign creator has the right to do as he pleases, to even use evil men for his purposes. God's mighty hand involves his freedom to both save and to judge. And if it disturbs us that that's too much freedom to give to anybody, uh, that's not up to us. (laughs) So we just need to change our opinion about that. God is Yahweh. God is the absolute one, and he has freedom even over the sinful decisions and attitudes of men. We saw how God overruled the minds of the Egyptians to give up their treasures to the Israelites when they just came to the door and knocked and said, can we have it? Now, that doesn't bother us too much unless we happen to be the guy that woke up the next morning with uh, his firstborn son dead in an empty bank account. That might be a problem. But we regularly expect God to violate people's free wills. We ask God for it all the time. We ask God to bring customers for our business, which means they're not going to someone else's business, they're going to ours. 
We ask God to guide the surgeon's hand, to have him do a better job than he wouldn't have done if we hadn't prayed. We ask God to guide the doctor's diagnosis. So we ask God, please help the embassy to process our visas quickly. And we are seldom bold enough, however, to suggest that he has had any part in someone's sin. But the Bible is not shy to say that. Let me give you examples. Do you remember when Eli's sons were desecrating the things of God? When Eli tried to rein them in, it says this. They would not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. 1 Samuel 2. What about the word to Isaiah? That God would make the people's ears dull and close their eyes so that they might not see or understand or turn and be healed. Isaiah chapter 6. Jesus quoted that from Isaiah to explain why he started using parables, which were actually made what he was saying kind of veiled to the people that were lost so that they would, they would cloud the truth from those with stubborn hearts, Matthew 13. There was a guy named, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, I think Shami, but we usually say Shimei. He was cursing King David and he was throwing rocks at him. And you remember what David said to Abishai when Abishai wanted to behead the guy for cursing the Lord's anointed? David said this, let him curse for the Lord has told him to. Second Samuel 16. In regard to the end days, Paul prophesies this. God sends or will send them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness, 2 Thessalonians 2.11. Two more from the Old Testament. From Deuteronomy, Moses is recalling the history of their wilderness wanderings. And he says, but Sion, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through. For the Lord your God had made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands as he now has done. And then finally, Psalm 105.25, I think in some ways the hardest of them. The psalmist reflects in what we read in, well, what we read in Exodus 1, how the Egyptians dreaded and turned on the multiplying Hebrews. And it says here, The Lord turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily or shrewdly with his servants. That's where the severe slavery came from. All I'm trying to show is that Scripture makes God's sovereign freedom so absolute that even the sinful acts of human beings accomplish his purposes, and he has the ability to use such sin, get this phrase, to use such sin sinlessly. And I know it's hard to understand or explain how that could be true, how that would not impugn God's perfection, his holiness. And I know we are glad that he overruled sinful acts to perfect his good plan, but we get nervous when it looks as if he's perpetuating or perpetrating evil acts, even though the end is always a good one. Does the end justify the means as long as you're God? Well, somehow God does all this hardening with Pharaoh and still holds him accountable. Let's just look at that a little bit. The truth is, Pharaoh got far less judgment than he deserved. His heart was wicked. God judged him. He was freely expressing his own nature, and he chose to be wicked, and God judged him. And even the hardening was a judgment. And no one should ever suggest that Pharaoh was not accountable. Hardly anyone in the history of this world had seen what he saw of the mighty hand of God, or ever has but he never turned from hardness to humility. So it says, he hardened his own heart. 
And yet it also says God hardened it. To get God off the hook for Pharaoh's sins is not so easy. And so I would just say this. This is deep theology that is deeper than my own mind can understand. I can only say that I am not content to solve this dilemma by saying that the vast area of action in this world that involves sin is just completely out of bounds for God. He just he has nothing to do with any of that. It's outside his control. The Bible never tries to solve this dilemma. It tells you that people sin, they're accountable. It tells you God does things, even things that seem sinful, but God does so sinlessly. And the Bible just doesn't try to tell you how that works. <laughs> in a way, this is the whole import of God being Yahweh. This is the God who says, I am who I am. Now, you know that nobody else can never say that. You can't say when you're confronted, you might have tried, hey, buddy, I am who I am. This is just me, so get used to it. Can't help myself. Just accept me and go away. But God can say that because all that he is, he has every right to be. And all he determines to do is both right and it cannot be thwarted. This extends even to the evil men do. No one and nothing escapes the divine rule. God can have Abraham say, and I love this verse because even if you don't understand any of this, you can quote this, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Genesis eighteen twenty-five. Some of you could think back in your own life. Maybe you are the result of A man and a woman coming together, they became your mother and your father, but they came together illegitimately, and it was a sinful intimacy. And yet it produced you. And here you are, you say, am I an accident? No, you are not. You pronounce God good, because you were a person foreordained to exist, and if you are saved, to be saved. Before the foundation of the world, that was decided. If we exclude God from some degree of direction, over even the sordid affairs of the world, just how many affairs are left for him to direct? How many are not sordid in some way? Not many. (laughs) And then the cost of excluding God from all of that would be that we would have little assurance that history would ever culminate in the amazingly blessed way that God promised it would. Yet how does God do all of this? It is a flat-out class A mystery. And in the end, you must leave it with God, along with many other mysteries. Like, For instance, how does prayer work when God is sovereign? Uh, or how can God be one in, and three at the same time? You just leave it with him. Pharaoh sins big time. He's accountable. A futile attempt to hold God down, but God brings glory out of it that only lifts God up higher. All right. I want us to finish this. So here's the takeaway. Like a generation that Moses was writing for, let's say you are that generation, especially those of you that are younger. I just want to say this, which I have before, that you will face challenges to your faith, and to your walk with God that your parents never had to. And you are going to fail unless you get a stronger appreciation for the mightiness of Yahweh than your parents had because you will be tested more. And how will that come about? You're going to have to be in the scripture, because there is where you learn to know God. You've got to know him. You've got to know him as mighty. You've got to know him as amazing. 
You've got to know him so well that you would be like Joshua and he's told you're going to go into the land. He's part of this generation or a leader of it. And God says to him, you're going to have to meditate on the word of God day and night or this is not going to work. And I'm telling you the same thing. There are going to be giants that you will have to slay. But unless you're in the scriptures and there you read God in big and you read yourself in small, you're not going to be able to do it. You need to learn how to go to the scriptures. Some of you say, well, I'm going to study the Bible so I can know it. No, you go to the Bible so you can know God and commune with him and worship him through it. And so when you open a chapter, you say, I need to pray this chapter. So I read myself in, this is about me, but this is about an amazing, wonderful God, and I'm going to pray this. It doesn't matter what it is. So I've got a couple of assignments. Read God in big in Exodus 10 to, uh, 7 to 10 and pray those chapters with your name and God's name and exult over him. And then read God in big in 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. Let's just put that up there one more time. And I want you to list all the things as you go through that you learn about God there. Humble yourself. So you say, humble myself. Lord God, help me to do that. Under your mighty hand. And I read this in the plagues and all through these judgments, how amazing you are. But how amazing you are, how you save someone like me who never deserved it at all. And so that as I humble myself, you're at the proper time going to exalt me. Oh God, I thank you for that. I can't imagine what that's going to look like. But even now, I just cast, I put all my anxiety on you, all of it, because you care for me. And so I humble myself gladly in the glorious presence of a God of majesty who infinitely surpasses and overshadows my own paltry being. You simply and honestly give way to him then, willing to be persecuted rather than give in, to stand up strong because you have a strong God. You go in, not like the two spies, not the ten, saying, we felt like grasshoppers in in their presence. And two of the guys said, that's great to feel like grasshoppers because we got a mighty God that's bigger than any giant, so it doesn't really matter. Do you think that way about God? And if you do, it doesn't matter what is coming on us, and there's going to be a lot coming on us. We will stand because we have an amazing God. And if you have a hard time humbling yourself or casting your burdens on the Lord, all of that, You don't get there by analyzing yourself and dissecting your worries and all of that. You just focus on God's greatness and his kindness. And you come to the cross because there you see the mighty hand of God pierced for your transgressions. That is how you stand as a generation under great peril. Wow. God is for us. There's a, there's a phrase that they use at the University of Washington. I've seen it in the banners there outside the uh, gymnasium in the stadium. Who we are is why we win. Have you ever seen that? That's a motto. Who we are is why we win. Well, if you watched the game last night, the Huskies lost badly. <laughs> so I don't know who they are if they're going to lose, but anyway. We will always win. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And now we're going to worship him. Bow with me. Lord God, we know that when we try to puff ourselves up or even push ourselves down, it is futile. You have called us to exalt you. And we're going to do that right now. We thank you 
that you care about us, and so we can put all our burdens on you even right now. As we read our Bibles and we learn how to read you in big and ourselves in small, we pray that the Scriptures will build us up in the most holy faith so that we will stand for you like Moses before a Pharaoh, unapologetic, not fearful, but knowing that you are our God. You are Yahweh. We love you. Pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.